Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Jude, and it's the very last part. It's uh, often we hear it. We often hear it as uh, as a doxology at the end of a service, and we may also today. But uh, this is a kind of a a summary of what the message is meant to be. But I'm actually going to be speaking from other scriptures as we go along. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before the, his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Well, it's a privilege for me to be up here again in a different capacity from from usual, and I didn't actually practice with the team this morning, so if in the first song it sounded a bit weird, it, it was, but um, your forgiveness for that. When uh, Dr. Greg Jones was here a few weeks ago, uh, as we embarked on this journey seeking to become a Mission Edge church, he made an offhand comment um, about some prominent characters in the four Gospels, uh, namely the Pharisees. And I don't remember his comment exactly, and I hope I'm not doing him an injustice, um, but what I heard, uh, at least what I took from what he was saying, um, is that he found it easier in some passages of the Bible to identify with the Pharisees than with Jesus. Um, perhaps I heard him speak that way because I've often shared that, that view. Or perhaps I should say it's easier to see in oneself the faults of the Pharisees than the virtues of Jesus. And this was coming from a person, Dr. Jones, who uh, has clearly been on this journey for a long time, clearly a mature Christian leader who's come to, to help us, a person who's preached lots of sermons, read lots of um, Christian books, prayed, participated in the life of the church, and served the church, and yet this person comes to stories in the gospel, and for all the years of joy and struggle in his Christian walk, there are still times when uh, he is able to realize that he's not arrived at some state of Christian maturity that lets him rest on his laurels, as if he's fought and won a fight and can just coast along from there on. I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying anything about Dr. Jones to be critical of him. I'm saying this because his self-awareness and, and the self-awareness of our Pastor Borden and others of you who have uh, been up here, and many times, often, those of you who have been mostly down there but have been hearing and serving in this church. Uh, I've heard the stories of Jesus time and time again and have seen how easy it is uh, or how big the desire is to strive to be like Jesus and yet ending up in moments of self-awareness, feeling like the Pharisees seeing ways that we are acting like the Pharisees, thinking like the Pharisees. And some of you may feel that if you have spent all these years serving the church, striving to live lives pleasing to God and practicing spiritual disciplines and fighting spiritual battles in the church and having it pointed out by a preacher or by your own conscience or by the words of Jesus in the scriptures, um, that we are still more like the Pharisees than we are like the one whom the Pharisees crucified. 
And you might feel at some point, well, what's the point of all this effort? Some of you might be feeling that discouragement. Maybe some of you were not feeling that discouragement until just now when I started to speak, but you're feeling it now. So this morning, I thought we might find some comfort in the uh, wisdom, uh, some comfort and wisdom if we follow parts of the stories of some of the heroes of the church uh, from early on in their journey to later on when they had become high-profile church leaders and some of the lessons that they had learned. But just before we do that, let me say a brief word about the Pharisees themselves because we don't necessarily get from the New Testament many clues as to who they were and what made them tick. So here are some impressions we might have uh, we might have of them that are kind of skewed or outright wrong. First, because we see the Pharisees as being the clearest opposition to Jesus' ministry, we might wrongly see them as an upper crust of Jewish religious, the Jewish religious authority of Jesus' time and the ones with all the power. And in fact, they were more like a, um, uh, an almost religious political group they were the ones who, uh, who had very strong views about following the law of the Old Testament. In fact, um, they were not the upper crust of society, though. Uh, the Sadducees were that. The Sadducees were the ones that were uh, kind of in seats of power. And the Pharisees were looked up to by the, most of the population as people who were really striving to live uh, according to the, God's law. The Pharisees were the example uh, to follow of, the, um, of everybody, of the fishermen and the, um, the workers, the farmers, and so on. So the second thing we might have wrong about the Pharisees um, that we don't necessarily get a, a handle on is that they had learned lessons coming out of the Babylonian captivity 500 years earlier and they became really focused on obedience to the Torah. They would have seen, been seen by common folk and in their own eyes as the righteous upper uh, echelons of righteous striving. And that's why the disciples were kind of shocked when Jesus said, unless you, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven because they saw the Pharisees as trying to live a life that was kind of beyond their aspirations. And so if Jesus was saying, unless you're better than them, you're not gonna make it, um, they were surprised. And they asked themselves, well, who then is gonna be able to make it? The Pharisees were obsessed with getting it right, just as we can be obsessed with trying to get it right. And it would have been extremely vexing for them to have a rabbi pointing out that in lots of ways they were hypocritical in their views and in their actions. Because when you become obsessed with being right, right in your doctrines, right in your behavior, right in your attitudes, it's easy and almost inevitable to start setting up a standard of behavior to measure yourself by and to measure others against it. Um, in the military, we had these things called... Uh, annual uh, PERs, Personal Evaluation Report. 
and they're a pretty detailed um, evaluation of your performance by your supervisor. And uh, they were intended, I guess, to be helpful to improve your, your evaluation, but they were grueling, they were sometimes dishonest, and, uh, and they focused on trying to make the performance of the person um, perfect. And that kind of looking inward, looking at oneself, looking at one's performance, can lead, one, lead us to one of two unhappy states, maybe both of these. It can lead to judgmentalism, to contempt for others who are less successful, and pride for those who feel they have done very well, that have exceeded others. And it can lead to a lack of self-esteem, if in that measure you don't feel like you're measuring up can lead to depression, to despair. And in those who feel they have failed to measure up, um, it can lead to a lack of confidence that we can be of use to the Lord. Either way, it takes away a focus on the love and the grace of God himself. For myself, I think I can oscillate between these two extremes, feeling like I have finally got it right and criticizing others for not getting it right, and then the next moment I can see how hypocritical and judgmental my attitudes can be towards others. And I can get morose and depressed as a result. My soul resonates with uh, the anguish that's expressed by Paul at the end of Romans 7, when he says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Both of these extremes can rob our joy in the Lord. And the enemy is delighted to use even the drive to perfect righteousness if by doing so he can pull our attention away from God and fix it on ourselves and our performance. The devil used one kind of strategy for those who don't concern themselves with God and that's to let sleeping dogs lie. But for, for those who are very much focused on and concerned with about what God thinks, he has another strategy and it is more common in those who have journeyed a long time in the church. When the devil is successful in getting us to turn our eyes away from God and onto our own performance, the results can be devastating for the individual and for the church. Church splits can come about by this kind of focus that can be devastatingly harmful to younger Christians and older. Low spiritual self-esteem can paralyze the Christian who feels they are just unworthy to do anything for God's kingdom and God's work. Feeling spiritually superior can lead to condemning uh, or condescending pity uh, or even anger towards others. So today I'd like us to look at the stories of some of the Christians in the New Testament and looking at them not so much for the doctrinal truths that they teach or that are in the midst of that story, as important as they are, and as many sermons as could be uh, preached on those passages for that reason, for the doctrinal reasons. But today I'd like to look at these stories in the context of, of um, how they affected the person's spiritual health in terms of them suffering from, from the, uh, the actions that happened. And the two people, two of the people that I'd like to talk about today are two of the main characters in the New Testament other than Jesus, can, can you say what they are? Two, two names that might come to mind in the New Testament? 
Peter and Paul, yeah, that's right. 100% on your PER. <laughs> then there are three other characters in the New Testament that are not so well known. Um, John, Mark, Barnabas, and Silas. Mark we know mainly as the author of the uh, second book of the, of the New Testament, the book of the Gospel of Mark. And Barnabas was his cousin and a sort of a senior statesman in the church in the very early days. Now, Peter is almost a poster child for this phenomena of getting it spectacularly right sometimes, and then with the same paragraph sometimes, getting it spectacularly wrong. Remember when Jesus said to the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, thereby getting it spectacularly right. Then a moment later, he is getting, so getting it so spectacularly wrong that Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. There are lots of examples like this in Peter's story. And since it is thought that Mark, Mark's gospel is based on the preaching of Peter, that Mark followed him around and, and took down both the stories of, of Jesus' life and um, of his teaching, um, that these stories, are, these stories about Peter are, are perhaps from him. Peter is almost a poster child for these kinds of things. More profound, perhaps, is the story of Peter when he was in the courtyard of the, uh, the high priest. Uh, and just before that, when he was with Jesus at the, the Last Supper. Peter himself um, said to Jesus, even if all the others fall away, I will not. And a little bit later he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Then five or six hours later, we hear how Peter bravely followed Jesus from a safe distance when he was in the courtyard of the high priest he was identified as a follower of Jesus, and he denied Jesus three times, using the third time shockingly strong language. And the saddest and bitterest picture for a modern-day Christian who is convicted of sin is this picture of Peter when he hears the rooster crow in the early morning and remembers the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And Peter broke down and wept bitterly. And we're, here we have in just a few verses the declaration of Peter as he saw himself, a brave and loyal disciple of Jesus, even daring to say to Jesus, even if all the others fall away, I will not. Here he is in his own eyes getting it right. And then just a few hours later, being brought to the realization of his utter failure and cowardice and hypocrisy. 
Now, that is not the place that God left him. And there's a wonderful story uh, that I'll refer to just a little bit later about, Jesus, about Peter's restoration. But for now, I'd like us to skip to the other story in the New Testament. And it's an anecdote that Paul told um, the people he was writing to in his letter to the Galatians. And again today, I'm not bringing this story up for its important theological content, because it is very important, and much in the background of, of uh, a lot of the letters that were written in the, in the New Testament. This story comes after we hear of Peter's restoration. I wish I had time to look at the way that Jesus spoke to the deepest part of Peter, uh, his broken soul, and healing the wounds of his heart in his restoration. But we don't have time for that this morning. This story also comes after the great successes of Peter had in ministry as he preached the gospel on the first uh, on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were added to the church. After he stood before the Sanhedrin with John and declared, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, at risk of personal um, danger. It comes after he had had the vision uh, of the sheet lowered down from from heaven, in which there were uh, traditionally unclean animals, and the voice from heaven said, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter was shocked because he had never broken the dietary laws which were in the Torah. This vision was uh, a means by which God used Peter to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, the story comes after we see Peter has given a lot of, gotten a lot of things right. And he was one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Then it is hard to tell when this story took place that's recorded in, in, it's not recorded in the book of Acts. It only is found in the, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. But it seems that Peter had at some time come to visit the church in Antioch, maybe because he had heard reports of great things happening there um, where there were mostly Gentile Christians. Here's Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Again, I would like you to hear this story, not so much for the teaching point that Paul is trying to make in Galatians, but rather I'd like you to put yourself in Peter's place. When Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I, I being Paul, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So Paul called Peter out in front of them all. Paul doesn't tell us, or the the scriptures don't tell us, what Peter's reaction was to this rebuke. And since Peter doesn't mention it in his letters, 
And Luke doesn't mention it in, in Acts, the kind of history of the early church. We are left to speculate a little bit. But we can see here that um, of all the people we would expect to have finally arrived, finally have become a mature, wise Christian that didn't stumble, Peter falls down in exactly the same way that he did when he denied Jesus. He was bopping along with Christian fellowship and eating with the Gentile Christians, accepting them as equal fellow believers in Jesus. Then when the other leading believers with a pharisaical bent arrived from Jerusalem, he was afraid of what they would think of him, and he denied these new Gentile believers, um, insinuating, that, insinuating that he agreed with the ones that came from Jerusalem, the ones that were uh, caught up with the law, the ones who believed that um, both salvation through Christ and adherence to the law uh, was important for salvation. Again, we have no record of Peter's reaction to this incident, but Paul didn't give him much choice. He had been caught red-handed in his hypocrisy because he was acting one way before the people from Jerusalem arrived, and he was acting a different way afterwards. And I can, can't imagine it in any other way than for him to acknowledge to himself that he had failed again to stand up for what he knew to be true and failed in, his, in giving a good example to these tender new Christians that were in Antioch. And what are you supposed to do with that when you arrive at that place in your Christian journey? Would he have been angry with Paul for making him look bad in front of the others? Would he have been deeply embarrassed? Would he have allowed that wound to fester, letting resentment grow in his heart? Would he be traumatized by the rec recollection of that biggest failure, his denial of Jesus in the courtyard of the, the chief priest, um, that those failings were still with him? And that is the end of the stories of Peter found in the New Testament, but it is not the end of Peter's story. But let's leave Peter here for a moment and turn uh, to another story in the early church, story of Paul, Barnabas, and Silas, and Mark. We don't have time this morning to go too deeply into this story, but the gist of it is this. At a time when Paul was still feared by the Christians uh, because he had worked so hard as a committed Pharisee to hunt Christians, Barnabas, after Paul's conversion, Barnabas supported Paul, took him under his wing, brought him to Jerusalem, introduced him to some of the leaders of the of the church there, told about the missionary work that Paul had been doing. And then Paul and Barnabas labored together, building up the church in Antioch. Then they went together on a missionary journey, and it is hard to imagine that they were not close brothers in Christ at that time, working together for the Lord. They went on this missionary journey, and they took Barnabas's cousin, Mark, but for some reason, Mark dropped out, and Paul and Barnabas completed the missionary journey without him. Back in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas faced another huge challenge, as some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees came from Jerusalem to Antioch to see what was going on, and they began to stir up trouble 
saying to the Gentile Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this caused a huge controversy in the early life of the church. And it is in the background of a lot of the writings of the New Testament, including in this uh, time, is probably around the time that the story of uh, Paul confronting Peter takes place. But afterwards, Paul and Barnabas decided to go on a second missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them. But Paul felt strongly that they should not take Mark. Whether it was because he saw Mark as weak and unreliable, or because he thought Mark had threatened or jeopardized the first mission journey, or because he thought Mark needed some time to mature himself, Paul absolutely refused to take Mark. Silas absolutely refused, or at least Barnabas absolutely refused that Mark should go with him. And as a result, Paul and Barnabas had a really serious falling out, and a strong partnership was broken. Paul took Silas with him instead of Barnabas, who took Mark and went in a different mission in a different direction. So as it stood at this point, Silas was the new member on Team Paul, and Mark, Mark was definitely off Team Paul. And this must have been deeply hurtful for all three of these devout Christian people. Think how it must have felt for Mark, having been the cause of the rift between these two uh, close, close uh, working partners and friends. Well, that's it. There are the two stories of uh, three people, or two people, uh, Peter and Mark, who are brought to face to face with personal failures, even though both were prominent Christian workers. Um, in Peter's case, the most prominent Christian worker. And there was potential there for Satan to get in and sow seeds of resentment, seeds of anger, despondency, despair, arising out of the very efforts to live Christian lives and to get it right. I feel as if these stories are very relatable to the modern church. Many churches have been nearly destroyed by bitter disputes that can arise between mature, committed Christians. But more than that, it can be discouraging for even the most devout believers if they find that they are still struggling with the same kinds of sins uh, that were at the very beginning of their Christian journey. All of, the, all of this arising from looking at our performance, looking at ourselves, seeing to see if we are right or wrong on a particular issue, looking to see if we have um, come to a place where we can presume to judge and lead others. Thank God that these stories we've been looking at do not end in victory for the devil and defeat for the characters in these stories. We don't actually know how Peter and Mark dealt with these devastating setbacks. But we do have evidence that God didn't leave them discouraged and resentful. We have two letters in the New Testament that were written after all the events we have been talking about took place. We have the last letter of the Apostle Paul known as 2 Timothy, and a letter written by Peter, 1 Peter, probably written from Rome very near, very near the end of his life. In the very last word of this letter, Peter um, gives credit to Silas 
Remember, Silas was the person that re replaced Barnabas on the second missionary journey. But here in this letter, um, Paul ends his letter by giving credit to Silas for helping him to write it. And he also mentions very affectionately his son Mark. So here are two of the people, potentially devastatingly wounded by the events that had taken place earlier. There with Peter, near the end of his life, um, with him and helping him in his ministry and in writing the letter uh, to the Christians. After his failure on the first missionary journey, after Paul had seemingly written him off, God did not write Mark off. In fact, it seems that Mark spent time with Peter, helping him with the ministry, but also collecting and sending forth an account of the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the resurrection, based at least partly on Peter's preaching. And on, these, on, on Mark, we believe, were also dependent passages of Matthew and Luke. So a very important um, part of the scriptures. He seems at this point to be very much on Team Peter. And so does Silas, seems to be on Team Peter, working with him in ministry. But in the last few verses of Second Timothy, also written near the end of Paul's life, we hear Paul anticipating his own death. There's a note of triumph, but there's also a note of sadness and loneliness. He feels deserted by his friends. He asks for a cloak to be brought to him, suggesting he perhaps was cold, awaiting his trial and execution where he felt that he stood alone and was deserted by others. And he asks Timothy to come quickly to him and bring him the cloak and other manuscripts and other things that he had left behind somewhere. But who else does he ask for Timothy to bring with him to Rome? None other than Mark. There he is on Team Jesus. While earlier it seems that Paul had written Mark off, he now recognizes Mark's worth in his ministry. In fact, it, there is no Team Paul or Team Peter or Team Barnabas at this point. They're all on Team Jesus. It is clear that however much Paul might have written off Mark, however much Mark might have been tempted to write himself off, however much Peter had been tempted to hold on to his grudge against Paul or to be wallowing and in debilitating remorse over his bouts of hypocrisy, God was not finished with any of them. But it wasn't because they got better and finally arrived that they were performing better that they were getting better in the annual personnel evaluation report is more because God called them again and again to look to him, to look to his love, to his grace, to his forgiveness, to all the benefits that had come to them as a result of having the Lord Jesus living in their hearts. And they saw, stopped apparently focusing on self and self-evaluation and grew into the habit of focusing on God and God's love for them. 
and God's love for others. God can bring good things from our failures and he can use it despite of our failures. But when temptation arises and we feel failure or we feel like striking out against someone else because of our wounds, can we learn from these stories that Satan is a wily enemy that even uses our best efforts and our striving for righteousness against us, but he is not as powerful as our Savior, through whom we can experience the joy of repentance and forgiveness and restoration, rather than the bitterness of failure, through whom we can learn the sweet humility rather than a spirit of having made it. God will see to it that we do make it. On that day when we shall see him, we shall be like him because we see him as he is. On that day when we enter glory, then that will be all that has mattered and we will have made it. But we will have made it because we are with him. But then, until then, let us turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Gracious God, the temptations of the soul, like the temptations of the body, are ever before us. And we need you to deliver us from them. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised that you will deliver us and that you are delivering us. We thank you that you do not want us to be in perpetual despair, but that you want us to restore us from that. You don't want us to be harboring anger, but you want, us to deliver, you want to deliver us from that. So, Lord, as we look to you, we ask that you would teach us to be your true disciples in humility and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.